Welcome to ABC, Abergavenny Baptist Church, building faith and friendship. You are listening to a sermon series through the second half of the Gospel of Mark, entitled, Come Die With Me. Divorce was a highly contentious and controversial issue in Jesus' day. And still today, it's a contentious issue because it provokes so many emotions. We've all been affected by divorce or we know someone who has. And it always or inevitably, or at least in most cases, it leads to hurt and pain and blaming. That's why God hates divorce. Now hear me, God doesn't hate divorcees. He loves them. He feels their pain and their hurt. That's why he hates divorce. Divorcees also hate divorce. Because inevitably it leads to hurt and pain. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 1, we read, Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea and crossed the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and, as was his custom, He taught them. Now you will remember that they were in, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, far north of Galilee, when Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Anointed One, the true King. From that point, Jesus has been focused on going to Jerusalem to die. And he's invited his disciples to come die with him. And so he's traveled all the way from Philippi Caesarea, all the way down through Galilee, all the way down the east side of the Jordan River, and he's probably crossed the Jordan River somewhere near Jericho, and he's about to enter into Judea. Now this is the very place where John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And on the east side of the Jordan River is the area that King Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, was ruling. And it's within this setting that Jesus starts to teach the crowd just as John the Baptist had done. And we read in verse 2, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There is nothing sincere about that question. They are not genuinely interested in Jesus' views of divorce. It's a test. They want to trap Jesus. What is the trap? Well, Herod had divorced his wife so he could marry Herodias, his sister-in-law who had also divorced her husband, Herod's brother. Major scandal. And John the Baptist, never one for subtleties, had told Herod that he was wrong to marry his brother's wife. And we all know what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded for his troubles. So this is a highly politically loaded question. If Jesus 
condemns divorce, he will be accused of treason and possibly executed. If, however, he allows divorce, he'll probably lose the loyalty of the crowd that he's teaching. They, the crowd, they don't like Herod. They believe Herod is a false puppet king. They believe Herod was wrong in marrying his brother's wife. And they, of course, are waiting for Messiah to kick out Herod. So the Pharisees asked Jesus this highly politically loaded question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now there was general consensus among all Jews that divorce was allowed. It is lawful. The contention was on the grounds for divorce. The crucial text goes back to their Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, which says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and so on. So divorce was, was allowed, it was considered legal, but the crucial phrase is this something indecent. What exactly is that? What's included? And in those days there were two schools of thought. You had the stricter school, the school of Shemaiah, who basically said that the something indecent was a some moral indecency. Whereas you had a more liberal school, the school of Harel, who had a far more freer interpretation of that phrase to mean that if the husband found anything in his wife that was displeasing to him, that was a ground for divorce. There are examples where a husband got a divorce because his wife burnt the food, his dinner. In fact, if he merely found another woman more attractive, that was a grounds for divorce. And human nature being what it is, it was this latter freer view that, was, that prevailed in that day. And so this is the, the question. The real question is, and this is explicit if you read Matthew's version. So the real question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Or, is it lawful for a man only to divorce his wife for some moral indecency? And of course, if Jesus says that divorce is only allowed for some moral indecency, then he would be condemning Herod's marriage to Herodias. And hence falling into their trap. But Jesus, of course, can see a trap from a mile off. But he's still able to answer this question with integrity, even though it's only later when he's in private speaking to his disciples that he gives a direct answer to this question. In public, he responds to their question by asking them a counter-question. And we read in verse 3, What did Moses command you? 
And they reply in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, what's that all about? Why does Moses allow them to write this certificate of divorce? Now we need to understand something of their culture, the culture in that day. Women had no rights. They were considered merely to be the property of a man. A woman did not enter into marriage. She was given in marriage. And if a husband, at any point, if he becomes displeased with his wife, he could simply discard her. And after he's discarded her, if she happens to find another guy, he can merely reclaim his property. She had no rights. She was considered to be property. And of course, a woman could never divorce a man. Only a man could divorce a woman. Hence the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce? And the reply, Moses permitted a man to divorce. So prior to Moses, a woman had no right and no protection whatsoever. And if the husband discarded her, she was left destitute. So the certificate of divorce actually gave her some freedom. It stated that she was free and she was able to marry any other man she chose. And once her husband had issued a certificate of divorce, he wasn't able to retract it. So it actually gave her some protection within their culture. Jesus, however, responds in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. In other words, Jesus is saying that divorce is not God's ideal. Divorce is not God's intention. Divorce is God's concession because your hearts are hard. Because you don't have the ability to live up to God's standards and ideals, God in His grace allows divorce and tries his best to protect the vulnerable innocent party from the consequences of divorce. If you want to find God's ideal, you need to go back to the creation account and see God's original intention. And we read in verse 6, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is God's ideal that a husband and a wife will never separate. A couple of uh, things to note here. Firstly, when Jesus says that God made them male and female, He is emphasizing that the woman is an equal partner in the marriage. She is not property. And when Jesus uh, says that a man will leave his father and mother, he will forsake others for the sake of his wife, Jesus is emphasizing again that the wife is an equal partner in the marriage and needs to be respected. When he says that the two will become one flesh, he's actually emphasizing that they are more than just equal partners. 
They actually become a whole new entity. They entity. They become a new person. They become one. And lastly, when he says what God has joined, he's emphasizing that it's the responsibility of both the husband and the wife, a responsibility to each other and to God to maintain the marriage. And so within that culture, Jesus is really raising up the rights of a woman within a marriage. And he's also displaying God's true ideal that a husband and a wife should never separate. And so Jesus is able to respond to their question with integrity and without getting himself killed. (coughs) But it's only in private When he's speaking to his disciples, does he answer the question directly? And we read in verse 11. Anyone who divorces his wife, and Matthew's account includes the words that are implicit in Mark's account, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. So Jesus agrees with the strictest school that you can only get a divorce for some moral indecency. That obviously would include uh, adultery or other sexual sins, but it would include things like abuse as well. If that's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse or neglect, that radically violates the marriage bond. See, that actually destroys the very essence and the very virtue of marriage. It destroys that one flesh bond. And in such a circumstance, Jesus would allow divorce. Not because it's God's ideal, but because of the hardness of hearts. And through grace, He would allow divorce as the better of two evils. What Jesus does not allow is for someone to get divorced for any reason whatsoever. Especially if it's just because you have found someone else more attractive. For your spouse is not a property. It's not your property. You can't just trade your wife in for a newer model. You have become one flesh. What is the most shocking thing that Jesus says over here is that when a man marries another woman, uh, gets divorced and marries another woman, he commits adultery against her. Against her. She has rights. No one has ever said anything like that before. There is nothing even close to that within ancient Judaism. This is completely unprecedented. You see, within their culture, you can only commit adultery against a man. If if, if a, a wife has a sexual relationship with another guy, she commits adultery against her husband. However, if a husband has a sexual relationship with another woman, he doesn't commit adultery against his wife, but he commits adultery against the other woman's husband. 
The woman is merely the, the, the property of the husband. And as such, a husband in that culture could have sexual relationships with as many women as he likes as long as they are not married because then he's not violating another husband's property. Jesus radically and profoundly changes everything by saying you can commit adultery against a woman. Wow. He is stating that a woman is an, has equal rights, is an equal partner with rights. And if a husband has an affair, he commits adultery against his wife. That also implies that marriage is only between two people. In their culture, you know, a husband could have multiple wives. But the implication of this is that marriage is only between two people. Marriage is about two people making a lifelong commitment to each other and becoming one. There's no room for a third person. There's no room for a third person for the wife or for the husband. They have, the two have become one flesh. And what God has joined, let no one separate. So how does this apply to us today? How does this apply to us? Well, firstly, we need to recognize the rights of women. We need to recognize the rights that Jesus invested in women. Created equally, male and female. We should never treat anyone, especially our wives, as objects or possessions, but as equal partners with rights and with dignity. And we as a church need to stand with and stand up for all women who are being abused, be that physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, or through neglect. Just as Jesus did. Secondly, we need to strive for and be committed to God's ideals with marriage. Marriage is only for two people. Marriage is about two people making a lifelong commitment and becoming one. And if you are married, you need to be committed to and striving for that goal. Thirdly, we need to safeguard our marriages. We need to forsake others for the sake of our spouse. Especially with sexual relationships. And that's not just talking about adultery. It starts with flirting. If you're flirting with someone other than your spouse, it is wrong because it will erode the one flesh bond. Also, if you are gaining sexual pleasure from anything or anyone other than your spouse, such as pornography and the like, it is wrong because it erodes the one flesh bond. You might object, well, well it's just, we didn't do anything. It was just innocent flirting. Or it's just a bit of porn. I, I didn't do anything. But sure. But that's where it starts. And even immediately, it starts eroding 
the one flesh bond. Forsaking others for the sake of your spouse isn't also only limited to sexual relationships. You can also have inappropriate emotional attachment. If you are constantly seeking help and support, emotional support from someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse, it is wrong. For to erode the one flesh bond. You also need to be forsaking others in order to spend time with your spouse. That means sometimes you'll have to say no to other people. Sometimes you will have to disappoint other people so that you can spend time with your spouse. You need to be spending time with your spouse, investing in your relationship, working on your marriage. Relationships don't die overnight. When someone says, oh, well, we just, we just drifted apart. That didn't happen overnight. That happened years ago when you stopped investing time and effort into your relationship. You need to ensure that you're spending time with one another. Ensure you're having a date night. Ensure you're having fun with each other. Ensure that you're communicating. That you're listening to each other. Forgiving each other. Loving each other. After extensive research done by the sociologist Bradford Wilcock from the University of Virginia, they discovered that there were three things that would reduce the likelihood of divorce in half. One, if husband and wife share the same faith. Two, if husband and wife attend the same church regularly. Three, if husband and wife practice their faith at home, reading the Bible together, praying together. A couple that prays together stays together. Now this isn't a guarantee. This isn't saying, oh, if you don't do these things, then you'll have a divorce. Nor is it saying, if you do do these things, you won't have a divorce. It's merely stating statistically that the likely, if you do these things, the likelihood of you getting divorced is reduced by 50%. So if you want to safeguard your marriage, and your spouse is a Christian, then you should come to church together regularly, and you should pray together at home. But what happens when the relationship breaks down? First, let me just say that if there is abuse, be that physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, or neglect, then you should leave your partner immediately. It's not God's will for you to be in an abusive relationship, and that totally violates the sanctity of marriage. Abuse is not marriage. However, if there is a breakdown in a relationship, and there is abuse, then you need to do everything you can to try and seek reconciliation and healing. Do a marriage enrichment course. See a, a marriage counselor. Make radical changes in your life to save your marriage. Come speak to us. We would love to help you, talk to you, pray with you. I know of Christian couples whose marriage was on the brink of disaster. They were about to split. But after a lot of hard work and prayer, 
God turned their marriage around. They're not only just still together, but they are happily married. Sometimes, of course, the relationship still breaks down. And often, the, the, the variables are beyond your control. Sometimes your spouse just refuses to meet you halfway, or perhaps your spouse is totally set on the divorce. You've tried everything and it's still just not working. It's come to a dead end. I believe in those situations, Jesus, like Moses, would allow divorce. Not because it's God's ideal, but because of the hardness of heart. Because it's a better of two evils. Divorce should always be the last resort. But in a, and divorce is never good. But in our fallen world, often it's the best thing that two people can do. And God is gracious and understands. And if you've been divorced, then you need to know that God feels your hurt and your pain, that God loves you, and that God hates divorce as much as you do. But our God is gracious and can bring healing. Jesus calls us to live up to some very high ideals. Just by the way, we're not a church that would say if things get tough in marriage, I'll just get a divorce. But nor are we a church that says, never get a divorce. Those two options are very easy and simple. Life is really easy and simple. And that's why we need God's wisdom and God's grace. Jesus calls us to some very high ideals. These are high ideals. And it's very hard for us because we have hard hearts. We all have hard hearts. I have a hard heart. Jesus knows we have hard hearts. Yet He calls us to these ideals. Why? He knows he's got the cure for hard-heartness. Through his death and resurrection and by sending the Holy Spirit, we can receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit can soften our hearts and enable us to live up to these ideals. So often I find myself crying out to God, God, I can't do this. I need your help. I need your Holy Spirit to fill me, to empower me, to enable me to follow Jesus. And on this Pentecost Sunday, let's cry out to God afresh. Let's ask God to send His Holy Spirit into us afresh. Let's receive His Spirit afresh. And let the Holy Spirit empower you and enable you to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that our hearts are hard. We confess that we struggle. We confess that we need your help. Father, won't you send your Holy Spirit to move amongst us now, 
to bring healing, to minister your grace. Father, we thank you that you feel our, our hurt, you know our pain, and you know our flaws and our faults. Yet you still love us. You refuse to give up on us. You are always there for us. Waiting for us to turn back to you. This morning, Father, we want to declare we turn back to you afresh. We need your help. We need your spirit. To empower us and enable us. To heal us. We need your grace. Holy Spirit, won't you fill us afresh right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.